Hey, repeat listeners, this is our second episode. If you haven't listened to episode one, we suggest you go back now and listen to that one first. A warning, this episode does contain descriptions of gun violence and some explicit language. Think about the last time you saw a police shooting in the news. It all started with a call of an armed robbery that occurred just down the street. How much information did you get about the suspect? Robinson has had problems with the law. He pleaded guilty to participating in an armed robbery in Madison. Looked like a demon during their altercation, and then he drew his Self-defense against a suspected drug dealer. Smith, he said, was pulling a gun on him. His arrest record. His behavior that drew in law enforcement. The location of his hands. A 13-year-old pulled out a gun from his waist belt. Reaching for what he thought was a small gun. And he had a metallic object in his hand. At that point, the officers fearing for their safety fired a bomb. And how much information did you hear about the officer? Did you catch his name? Often, you learn very little about an officer after a police shooting. It's an information imbalance. Getting any information about an officer in California is difficult. The laws are among the most restrictive in the country. Police personnel records are kept secret, and a lot of things are labeled personnel records. Law enforcement groups say it's to protect officer privacy. This is true for Los Angeles County Sheriff's Deputy Gonzalo Nzunza, who we learned last episode shot a burglar named Tanel Billups in 2011. Billups, I found, was one of four people shot at by Nzunza in seven months. And information about those shootings, well, it may change how you see Billups's case. And there is at least one member of the public who can get this secret information about Nzunza's past conduct. One person who is entitled to any relevant information. And that's Billups. The window opened for him when he was criminally charged. Illegal possession of a gun and pointing it at officers, among other charges. Charges that ultimately led to prison time. Uh, we've been on we've been on lockdown. Oh what? Yeah, we was on lockdown because somebody died or something, or it was so people was dying or something from overdosing. So they doing a massive search throughout the prison system, like searching for contraband drugs and stuff like that. They're so they're trying to figure out the source of like whoever's uh, bringing the drugs. Yeah, in. they're trying to just. I guess I assume that's what I assume. I don't know. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I've been working. I mean, I've been working more on the story, which is why I've been I've been waiting for you to call. You know, I just I've been trying to find what I can about um, Deputy Nzunza. It's just really hard to get the records on police. You had got some of it through the criminal trial, right? Like your Deborah Sims had put to put to forward that motion to have his background brought into the case. Yeah. You know the deputy in Zunes' history. I mean, what? How did you think that that was going to help your case? Well, actually, it, it would help it a lot because it shows that he have a pattern of police misconduct. Billups's public defender, Deborah Sims, asked for a court order, a call for the sheriff's department to hand over information from Zunes' past and from other officers at the scene. The filing accuses officers of lying about Billups having a gun and accused Nzunza of shooting Billups without provocation. Billups' public defender declined to comment for this story. The public defender asked the judge to order prosecutors to disclose any other complaints about these officers violating constitutional rights, fabricating charges or evidence, 
past dishonesty, false arrests, excessive force. The request is public defender made is called a pitches motion in California. And when she came back there to visit me before court, she said, guess what, Tanel, guess what? I got the uh, picture motion came back, and he's, he's, he's got a lot of stuff in there, and this looks good. Uh, just be patient. Cause, and I said, what do you mean it doesn't look good for him? She said, well, he got a lot of complaints, and he's been written up and all type of stuff. So was your... Uh, divorce. What'd you say? Uh, he got uh, complaints about excessive use of force and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Do you remember anything specifically about what was in that file? Were you allowed to look at it? No, she didn't let me see it. Oh. You're listening to Repeat from KPCC. I'm Annie Gilbertson. This episode, the Inzunza file. What is in Deputy Inzunza's past? I thought I'd ask him about it myself. I went to his house, figured it was my best shot at getting him to talk. I wanted to know why he shot Billups. When did he see the gun? What's it like to be in a job that forces you to make split-second decisions like that? He lives in a neighborhood of large, ranch-style homes. Nzunza's house was understated, almost shrinking behind a big truck parked in the driveway. Probably this one. A plastic baseball bat lay on the front lawn. I waited. I had no reason to believe Nzunza wanted to talk to me about his shootings, dig up and divulge what may have been one of the worst days of his life. And I remember thinking, what if he's angry? Hi. Hey, uh, I'm looking for Gonzalo Nzunza. This is Annie Gilbertson. Oh, are you? I'm sorry. I'm a reporter. Okay. He stood in his doorway in a white undershirt. He's a big guy the shoulders of a football player. He didn't seem angry so much as startled. A reporter had shown up at his doorstep. Are you Gonzalo? No. See, you live here? Uh, no, not right now, thank you. I'm already recording. Sorry about that. Okay, you're not Deputy Insunza, Annie Gilbertson. I didn't buy that it wasn't him. A woman came up, peered over his shoulder. I could hear the TV on in the background. Well, I've just been... KBCC Radio. Yeah, KPCC yeah, Radio. Not, I've been working on a story. Just, sir. I locked the door. I'm not going to open the door. Deputy Nzunza did not want to talk. I'd like to tell you I got Nzunza's file. I did not. Like I said, that file is kept secret from the public. So I made my own file. I hunted for any other public record I could find and talked to people. This episode, some of what I found. Deputy Nzunza became a sheriff's trainee in 2000. According to records, his rookie year was split, a few months working administration in the custody division and a few months at the training academy. 
His first post as a deputy was at the Inmate Reception Center, which, according to the sheriff's website, processes 120,000 inmates into and out of the county jail system each year. It's common for L.A. County deputies to begin their career in the jail, an environment, critics complain, teaches deputies to treat people like criminals. In 2006, Deputy Nzunza transferred to Century Station, which oversees patrol of the city of Linwood and unincorporated South L.A., Florence Firestone, Walnut Park, Willowbrook, areas known for gangs, turf wars, and drive-bys. A wild shootout at a popular South L.A. restaurant caught on... Black and Hispanic gangs are going at it every day. I know we got our story in South Los Angeles. Four people hit by gunfire at a marijuana dispensary. It makes the job of an officer tough, and at times, dangerous. It's better today than during the early 90s, among the worst of the gang years. There is a powerful new organized crime organization growing in this country, and Los Angeles is the center of it. This gang member and two buddies were smoking crack cocaine. In this war is almost futile. It is based on turf and belonging. In Los Angeles County, more than 700 gangs. In 1991, the L.A. Times reported gang violence in L.A. County had reached a record high, more than 700 dead that year, and it was not easing up. According to local news reports, deputies were accused of taking things too far. Linwood residents filed a lawsuit in 1990 saying the deputies were committing, quote, systematic acts of shooting, killing, brutality, terrorism, house trashing, and other acts of lawlessness and wanton abuse of power. Targets were Latinos and Black people. A judge told the law enforcement agency to start following its use-of-force policies. To this day, Century Station maintains its macho reputation among officers. Word is, if a deputy can make it there, he can make it anywhere. Records show Deputy Nzunza arrested 27 people during his first six weeks. Most of the charges leveled against the people Nzunza arrested over his career were for nonviolent offenses, according to sheriff's records. Possession of narcotics and marijuana, failure to appear in court, or driving without a license. He went four years without shooting anyone. That changed one morning when he responded to a burglary call. I'll tell you about it after this quick break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Okay, so Deputy Nzunza's first shooting was in October 2010. A 17-year-old black kid. His name is Lenaric Naborn. He survived. When I first read about it, I was surprised at how similar it sounded to Billups' shooting, which happened just a few months later. It was the morning, 9.30 a.m. Not exactly what I picture when I think about police shootings. It was another burglary, this time Linwood, another neighborhood full of houses. 
And Naborn told me he, too, was trying to get away. Well, I was on the way out from burglarizing the house. When I see the police, I tried to get away because I was committing a crime. Naborn's on the phone from a prison. He's serving time for a different crime, a robbery he committed later as an adult. Naborn tried to flee, but said he only made it to a neighbor's yard. Deputies had him surrounded. Naborn was a big kid, nearly six feet tall, about 200 pounds, his mom said. And he was in basketball shorts. I told him I quit. Like, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to run no more. And they told me to get out. Naborn said he went for the ground. I was going to go face first to the floor, but I stopped myself. I don't know. I don't know what it was, but I stopped myself. When I went to get out the other way, like in the squat position, I just heard gunshots. According to the district attorney's office, quote, Deputy Nzunza had his service weapon pointed at Linaric through a gap between an iron gate and a block wall, while he and other deputies repeatedly ordered him to stop and show his hands. The report goes on to say, quote, Nzunza then observed a large bulge in Linaric's left shorts pocket that resembled the outline of a gun. Linaric placed his left hand inside his shorts pocket when he was within a few feet of Nzunza. Nzunza feared that Linaric was about to pull out a firearm. In fear for his life and the lives of deputies that were in the line of fire, Nzunza fired his service weapon three times. Linaric fell to the ground, but continued to grab his pockets several times before being handcuffed by deputies. But Nborn told me there was no reason to shoot. He said he was surrendering. I was already down on the ground. I couldn't do that. So there wasn't even, there wasn't no reason for that. Naborn was hit in his abdomen, thigh, and back. There were at least three other deputies at the scene. According to DA records, two of the deputies saw Naborn's hands reach toward his pocket and both believed he had a weapon. None of the others fired. Naborn said deputies ran up and he was kicked. There was no key kicking me, trying to ask me, where's my crime? Like, where's my crime? His crimey, his crimeate, a guy he was with. I just, I just was telling him, like, I don't know what y'all talking about. Just call an ambulance, call an ambulance. I can't confirm that happened. It's not mentioned in the official report. I'm not sure if Naborn told officials. Records show after the shooting, the teen's pockets were searched. They found 146 bucks, a plastic disposable lighter, a partially burned cigarette, and a packet of chewing gum. No gun. Naborn told me he was charged, took a plea deal, and spent a short stint in juvenile detention. But I can't get juvenile criminal records to confirm this either. They're confidential. What I can see is that the shooting investigation went to a special division of the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Each time an officer shoots someone, the DA reviews it for potential charges. And the DA pointed out it was the teen who had run away. It was the teen who had not listened to commands. It was the teen who had reached for his basketball shorts. The DA found Nzunza acted in self-defense. Nzunza went back to work. The last few weeks of 2010 were quiet for Deputy Nzunza, as far as I can tell from department arrest records. Nzunza did not arrest anyone over the holidays, November and December. I don't know if he was on leave or what. That's considered a personnel record. What I can tell you is that he was back making arrests by January 2011. Then in April, another shooting. Tanel Billups, who you already met. 
and who Nzunza said pointed a gun at him and his partner. They take target practice. So what am I doing? Committing suicide? I'm going to be running. In that whole scenario, I was running away. Not running towards them. I was running away, trying to get away for a simple burglary. That's it. And was shot. Deputy Nzunza, again, was investigated by homicide, which investigates all officer shootings, whether they're fatal or not. Nzunza returned to the streets almost immediately. Five days after he shot Billups, records show he was out making arrests. The DA had yet to decide whether the shooting should result in criminal charges at that point. Four months later, the DA's office decided Deputy Nzunza had not committed a crime. By then, DA records show he had already shot at two more people. Use of force issues date back decades at Century Station. In the 1990s, Century had three times as many shootings as other stations. In the mid-2000s, the culture at Century Station was still an issue. Then Captain Steve Roller told me he noticed some officers at Century Station had a permissive, if not cavalier, attitude toward police shootings. He didn't want to go on tape. Roller got to Century in 2005. He told me he tried to change the culture, but was met with opposition. That opposition, he said, came from the top. A man named Paul Tanaka. Then Assistant Sheriff Paul Tanaka visited Century Station in 2007 to address an auditorium of officers. Roller documented it, wrote everything down in a letter. According to the letter, Tanaka stated he believed deputies and officers should function right at the edge of the line and that deputies needed to be very aggressive in their approach to dealing with gang members. Tanaka's attitude, Roller told me, was it was okay for officers to break the law if it meant getting crooks in jail. Tanaka's lawyer, Charles Sevilla, told KPCC Tanaka wasn't telling anybody to violate the law. Paul Tanaka is now in prison for obstruction of justice and conspiracy. Deputy Nzunza's next shooting also involved gang members, official reports show. Julio Haro and Alejandro Trejo are affiliated with the Latino gang, Florencia 13. Both men survived. The shooting was only seven weeks after Billups, so I'm guessing it was one of these guys Billups says he met in the jail infirmary. I can't say for sure. Haro's the older one, 21 at the time. Trejo had just turned 18. Both were sent to prison after the shooting. Like everyone else I had talked to who had been shot at by Deputy Nzunza, they too were California inmates. I wrote each a letter. I'm working on a story about a deputy who shot multiple people, I said. I'd really like to talk. Call me when you have time. Trejo, the younger one, called right away. All he's got is time. I asked him to tell me what happened. From the beginning, beginning, or where they, where they, where they put the story at? Trejo and I talked a handful of times about this day, even after he was transferred to a private prison in Mississippi. He told me it was the first time he had crossed the country in his life. He couldn't believe the southern downpours, far wetter than his longtime L.A. home. Trejo told me that the day of his arrest, his friend Haro picked him up in a Honda. It was early in the morning, around 7 a.m. Trejo told me that they were on their way to get some breakfast. That's when sheriff's deputies got behind them. Deputy Nzunza and his partner that day, Deputy Adam Stoll. And a report they say that 
they they seen the person was driving the car, driving reckless and this and that, but none of that happened. Trejo said his friend Haro got nervous when the patrol car got behind them. And we seen we seen him get behind us, and we know who it was. So we took off, right? They behind us, whatever. We lost them for a good, I say, minute. Then we left them behind. That's when we hit that little street, that little side street, and we crashed. They crashed into a metal fence. The fence is connected to the main road, Alameda. It's a busy area, a bunch of shops, auto glass and repairs, businesses surrounded by these high sheet metal fences. When they crashed into the fence, Trejo said he thought, oh no, there's a gun in the car. I had the gun, right? I threw it out the window. I know I'm kind of uh, myself over that, but uh, what really happened, all right, I threw the gun out the window. Incriminating, he said, because Trejo admits he had a gun. Trejo said the gun landed on the other side of the metal fence. The problem now, the crash had jammed the car door. I remember I tried to open the door to the car to get out and run. It wouldn't open. He was trapped. So I jumped out the window, and that's when uh, they just pulled up and they started shooting. I didn't even hear a freeze, nothing. No, like, they just shot. According to district attorney records, Trejo did not ditch the gun. He still had it when deputies arrived. I'll read from the DA report. Quote, Alejandro Trejo climbed out the passenger side window of the Honda, armed with a handgun. Trejo pointed the handgun at deputies in Zunza and Stoll. In Zunza, in fear for his and Stoll's lives, fired three rounds from his service weapon through the front windshield of the patrol car at Trejo. That's the official record. Trejo ran. According to the DA records, deputies said Trejo ran with a gun and turned towards the officers. That's when Nzunza's partner, in fear for his life, also shoots. DA records said Trejo was hit in the right hip and groin. Trejo told me both entry wounds were from behind. He fell to the ground. Both deputies said that was the moment Trejo threw the gun. They said it flew from his hands and into the air. It landed back by the crashed car. It's two different stories, one in which Trejo is armed during the shooting, one in which he's not. According to DA records, Trejo initially denied knowledge of the gun. When he was told there would be DNA testing, Trejo admitted to arming himself before exiting the vehicle. To me, this confession matches both versions. Trejo saying he grabbed the gun and immediately threw it, and the officers who claimed that he had a gun, pointed it at them, and it flew from his hands. So the question is not if he was armed, but when. And it matters when Trejo had the gun. It could affect if the shooting was reasonable, whether it was legal. Trejo, he accuses the deputies of lying. Because it's, it's a way to cover up for what they did. They know they, know they messed up, so the only way to, to make it up is try to try to get us to admit to the thing, and they get away with it. Trejo and his friend Haro were charged right away. The crashed Honda was stolen. Haro was charged with car theft and assault with a firearm on an officer. Trejo with receiving stolen property, illegal possession of a gun, and assault with a firearm on an officer. Trejo said he can see why a jury, why you, might not believe him. Yeah, well, they have a hard time to send my side of the story. 
but I know for a fact they'll take the the, the, the uh, officer's side of that story because he's, he's he's the law, you know. In their eyes, he's right what he's doing, you know. He's he's doing that for his job and he's spending his life, whatever, you know. Blah blah blah. Andreo had committed crimes before. The DA noted his juvenile record in the report. Treo had five sustained juvenile petitions, including possession of marijuana, possession of a knife on school campus, vandalism. In these records, there's no documented history of actual violence. Though Treo told me he had joined a gang when he was still a boy, 12 years old. And he gets why people will think he's dangerous, even if he's innocent of the assault charge. Treo faced a potential sentence of nearly 30 years. He ended up taking a plea deal because he said it seemed like a good option, even with the gun charge. I'm 18. I'm not going to take 32 years and come out when I'm like 50. I'm like, nah, I'm just so. And, and then another thing was like, they're, they're police officers. I'm just a number to them, you know? So when they give me that deal, I was like, I just about to take it before I get more time than, than what it is. But now that I, I realize it and I read the paperwork and the side of the story, I know I messed up, but I can't do nothing about it, you know? So it's like, I guess it's what it is. Records show his friend Haro also had a criminal history, and it was worse. Four felony convictions, including two convictions for possession of a firearm and another stolen vehicle. He took a deal, too. Treo now regrets not holding out for trial, not challenging Deputy Nzunza on the assault claim. It don't, it don't make no sense how they're going to they gonna have their stories nice and played to a point where they kind of make, make them the DA and the judge and everybody else believe it, which is not true. It actually happened another way. Would Treo's fate have been different in the hands of a jury? What did the evidence prove? I have very few records of Treo's case. Little more than a six-page summary written by the DA. Treo claims if you look closer at the physical evidence, there's enough to show deputies were lying. First, Treo said, look where the gun was found, back by the crashed car, where Treo claimed he ditched it before running away, before being shot. He said I threw it and it just happened to land right in front of the car. The DA report said the gun was found, quote, in close proximity to the crashed car. It doesn't say how far the gun flew in the air. And that distance, it's the second part of Trejo's argument. He claims he was too far down the sidewalk by the time he was shot for the gun to have flown back to the car. I asked Trejo if he had any evidence, anything to back up his story. A short time later, I got an envelope in the mail. It contained two pages of pictures, black and white photos of the scene. The photos were small, nine per page. I had enough to make a copy of the picture of the crime scene where I got shot and where the car is. In the photos, I can make out the smashed Honda collided head-on with the metal fence. The photos travel down the street, snapshot by snapshot, like a strip of film. The strip ended at the main street, Alameda. At the intersection, I see a pile of clothes where paramedics may have cut them off Trejo's body to treat his wounds. Trejo wrote a note in red ink. Quote, this is where I fell when I got shot. He said it may look close, but it's not. He wrote, it's actually far from the crash. He added three exclamation points. You can estimate like, how far it was, no? I did estimate how far it was. From what I can tell, the crash and the close are about three car lengths apart. That's about 45 feet. 
Did the gun travel that far? Or was Treo telling the truth? I wanted to talk to the other guy in the car, too. Treo's friend, Julio Haro. But Haro never responded to my letters. Then, one day, I saw he'd been released from prison. I asked Treo if he could help me contact him. Treo said he could get in word through his cousin, a go-between, on the outside. So what's up? Do you have any updates for me on your attempts to get Haro to talk? Oh, yeah. He said uh, he said that was a big no. Big no. Not He's not yeah. even... Okay. Nah, he's not even... Yeah, I, I tried to talk him into it, but uh, he wasn't having it. Just no. What is his... Like, what do you think his concerns are? I don't know. Like, I try to tell him, like, like you... Just hear her out one time, now, you know. You don't gotta fuck. You don't gotta say nothing. Just listen her out, and that's it, you know. We're like, nah, fool, I want, I want to talk to her. Don't, you like, don't even tell her how you talk to me. Okay, all right. Well, I can't make people talk to me if they don't want to. So. Haro never would talk. Haro, if you're listening, call me. Here's what I know so far. DA records say Haro never got out of the car during the shooting. Treo remembered after getting shot, Njinja's partner cuffed him on the ground. Treo says he then turned his head back toward Haro in the crashed car and saw Deputy Nzunza behind it, his gun drawn. I seen Gonzalo uh, in the back of the vehicle just blasting off. I, I, heard, I keep hearing shot after shot after shot. According to DA records, quote, Haro opened the front driver's side door and looked in Nzunza's direction. Haro yelled, fuck you, fuck you, at Nzunza. Nzunza told officials that he could see through the tinted windows of the Honda, Haro holding a black object, which Nzunza believed was a handgun. Haro was moving around inside the car, and Nzunza told investigators he thought Haro was positioning himself to shoot at the deputies. Quote, in fear for his and Stoll's lives, Nzunza fired several rounds at Haro. Trejo disputes this account. He said Haro never opened the door. He said Nzunza was standing behind the crash car spraying bullets. He said Nzunza's shooting was completely unnecessary. But when I fell, when I, when I got arrested, when I got shot, when I got handcuffed, I was looking in there and he was just behind the, the vehicle just shooting, shooting at the car. Like, he wasn't even giving no commands. He was just shooting. According to the DA, investigators found Nzunza fired 29 shots that morning. He would have had to finish one magazine and reload. Records showed two bullets hit Haro in the shoulder. But investigators found Haro did not have a gun. He was unarmed. The DA decided the shooting was legal. Officers had acted in self-defense. I added it to my file on Deputy Nzunza. A few phone calls, and this file was steadily growing. Three people had accused Nzunza of shooting unnecessarily. And two of them claimed... Nzunza lied to cover it up. And yet all the men took plea deals, including in some cases, charges for acts they claim they did not commit. What happened? Why not fight? The family of Tanel Billups, the burglar accused of pointing a gun at Nzunza, says in the jail, he lost the will to challenge the sheriff's department. In my eyes, they know that all this stuff is not right, that this deputy shot this man five times in the back and he don't have a gun. But under pressure, he's going to break. And that's what he did. Under pressure, he broke and took a deal because he was afraid.
Episode three, Witnesses in Uniform. That's next time. Thanks for listening to Repeat from KPCC. Our editor is Evelyn LaRubia. Additional reporting from Aaron Mendelson. Production from James Kim. Trisha Tonko is our fact checker, and our designer is Katie Briggs. Our music was composed and performed by Andrew Epen. Thanks to the KPCC product, digital, and engineering teams. Our senior producer is Arwin Champion-Nix. I'm Annie Gilbertson. If you want to support more work like Repeat, I have great news for you. You can do just that. Just go to kpcc.org slash repeat and make a donation. If every repeat listener gave $1 per episode, we could fund a whole other investigative series. That's kpcc.org slash repeat. While you're there, you can find a link to our Facebook group. I'm there every day engaging with listeners and sharing more about what I have learned while reporting this series. I'd love to answer your questions and hear your thoughts. 